Coming to you from Orlando, Florida. Orlando, Florida. And streaming around the world. Around the world. You're now tuned in to the Sales Samurai Podcast. The only B2B sales podcast providing unfiltered, unapologetic views and tactics directly from the sales trenches. Here's your host, Sam Capra. Well, welcome to another episode of the Sales Samurai. Thanks for listening. Before we begin, do us a favor, take a moment to subscribe and download. On today's show, we're going to be discussing how to interview SDRs. No experience required. And I have an amazing guest for you guys. I'm going to pronounce his name accurately. Jeremy Roosh, founder of Bandolier. He's already come down on me earlier on. I pronounce it. It makes you the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Jeremy, uh, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on, Sam. It's good to be here. You know what? I am really fired up for this conversation because this, I truly believe, and I've had this conversation many a time, I think the SDR role is probably the hardest thing, in my humble opinion, the hardest thing to hire for and accurately hire for. Like You can hire the wrong people constantly, but finding the right people is really a challenge for a lot of organizations. Am I way off kilter on that, or, or do you find that's a pretty synonymous statement? No, I, I think you are 100% right. Um, I think most of the companies we work with would say it is one of the most risk-prone and one of the hardest hires that they make really across the entire organization. And I think a big part of that is probably linked to the fact that most of the time folks are hiring entry-level SDRs. Right, yeah. Just by the, the nature of the role. So I, I think you're spot on. Awesome. Yeah, and I want to get into that. But before we do, hey, kind of share with the audience a little bit more about yourself, kind of your background, if you don't mind, just kind of bring them up to speed. Yeah. So I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Bandolier. As you mentioned, Bandolier is a company I started a little over four years ago now. And you know, the impetus for our creation is my experience managing an inside sales team for a fintech startup based in New York City, where I'm from. And that was really my first exposure to what an absolute freaking nightmare it is to hire folks (laughs) in entry-level sales roles. So I'm sure that is a topic we'll delve into more, but that's very much at the heart of why we exist as a business is sort of going through the experience of of recruiting, interviewing, and then training for those roles. Yeah. I'm always interested in kind of the origin stories and you have a unique kind of an origin story. I mean, obviously it's kind of baked into sales, but Kind of what, what's the background? What kind of got you down this path? This is a very unique path that you went down from a company standpoint. What was kind of the prompting point or the epiphany of, hey, this is where we got to go? Yeah. So I think it's sort of the nexus of two things. The first is that I experienced the issue we solve for clients as an individual five, six years ago. So I saw how potent a problem this was. And I tried to solve it at that time by looking for vendors to work with. Right. So managing this inside sales team, I said, wouldn't it be great? If there was a team I could just spin up really, really quickly that took all of this recruiting and interviewing stuff out of the picture for me that I could just spin up. And interestingly, the infrastructure for that does exist overseas. So there's a whole bunch of vendors that will build you an outsourced team to do things like operations, customer service, and they're really effective and really sophisticated providers doing this in the Philippines, in India, Ukraine. Wow. We needed folks that were US-based for our inside sales team specifically. So I started looking for a similar sort of arrangement, similar sort of infrastructure here in the US, and just couldn't find anything nearly as compelling. Right. 
So that's part one. And then part two is I'm witnessing from a societal standpoint, this great divide where you have all these tech companies in places like New York City, San Francisco, increasingly Denver and Austin, and all these jobs available in tech in these areas, paired with the sort of common parlance still true today of all of our jobs are going overseas or being automated away, something didn't quite add up, right? There seemed to be an opportunity to connect talent in parts of the country that had not yet really been touched by the tech revolution with these really compelling, really lucrative positions in in tech. And so it was kind of the the nexus of those two things that made me want to start a company to take a shot at, at beginning to solve that problem. That's awesome, man. It's because we were talking about this and, you know, I was just saying, I think this is a very challenging role to hire. Mm-hmm. And you brought up a great point. You brought up the fact that, you know, in most sales jobs, it's, hey, I'm looking for somebody with five year sales experience. They got to have a SaaS background and you start there, right? SDR, nine times out of 10, they're probably from college or they have no relevant sales background, whatever you want to quantify it. And it kind of throws a wrench into the typical philosophy methodology that we as sales leaders try to adopt as we're trying to find the right candidates. Yeah, And I want to dig into that because there's a process that you guys leverage and that you recommend. And I love the first element. We were talking about it offline. And you were like, the very first piece is just ask behavioral questions. So I want to dig into that as the foundation of our conversation. Kind of give the audience a little bit of an understanding of how you tackle hiring SDRs that don't have the experience like a typical salesperson does. Yeah. So I think the taking this back to how folks typically hire for roles where there is experience required, right? What they'll typically do is they'll ask you about scenarios where you've been in in the past that exactly mirror the situation they anticipate you're being in, right? If you're interviewing for a VP of marketing position, they will ask you about previous experiences, obviously, that you've had as a marketing leader. If you're hiring for an entry-level SDR position, you can't quite do that. If you haven't done cold calling before, I can't ask you about a time that you've cold called people. It just doesn't make sense, right? Right. I can't ask you about that. What I can do, though, is I can ask you about times where you have exhibited traits that are predictive of success in these types of roles. So that naturally begs the question of like, okay, great, but what are those traits? And so a big part of our work at Bandelier is trying to parse that out. Initially, through some assumptions that we made based on myself, my colleagues, our experience managing these kinds of teams. And my colleague, Matt, who built a lot of our initial interview rubric, was basing it off his experience managing 250 inside sales reps. And we had some initial hypotheses as to qualities we thought would be predictive of success in these roles. And then over four and a half years, we designed an interview process where we're asking really specific questions designed to get at specific traits grading out those questions in a very structured way. So our interviewers have very little leniency to say, I like this person, I don't. It's they got a four and here's why they got a four out of five because this is what characterizes a four out of five on this question. And then every six to 12 months, we'll actually go back and look at the predictiveness of those questions of the traits or the correlation to the traits they're actually exhibiting once they're on our team. So it's almost a if you think about it, it's, it's almost a two-step process. The first is identifying what those traits are and ensuring those traits are actually predictive. So if we notice, for instance, that we have a ton of people who are extroverts and we thought that was a really important trait, but it turns out, while our interview process is selecting for extroverts really well, the extroverts are flaming out a lot of the time. It's not actually predictive of success in the role. Well, that's a level one failure. right? And there's a level two failure of 
making sure that our interview questions are actually predictive of those traits. So like if we're the question designed to suss out, is this person an extrovert isn't actually getting at that? And we learn that six months into their tenure with us, well, then we have a separate problem. I love how you guys approach it from a very scientific mechanism, right? What are we gauging? And are we gauging the right thing? And does it continue to be the right thing to gauge? So what I like about that initially is, is the first step really creating, you mentioned a scorecard where it takes it out of the person's hands. If I like them, I don't like them. Well, why? I don't know. They just like them. I, those kind of answers. Is the first step that, hey, you guys, you have to develop some type of scoring sheet, scorecard. What would your feedback be around what that should consist of, Jeremy? So first of all, absolutely. We are big believers in structured hiring. We are big believers in scorecards. And you have to take my word for it. I mean, experts in HR and recruiting will tell you this is just a best practice for eliminating biases and making sure you're actually getting at the right traits. Initially, it's going to be a bit of a guessing game. It's going, and I can give you what we found. I'll, I'll give away some of some of the data points we've acquired over four and a half years of doing this for the SDR role specifically. But depending on the role that you're hiring for, there's going to be a little bit of a guess as to, hey, I think this quality is going to be predictive. And I do this even for roles outside of entry-level SDRs now. I am literally scoring out each question and saying, here's what I think a three looks like. Here's what I think a two looks like. Here's what I think a one looks like. And I'll tweak that rubric over time, right? So I might interview somebody, say, I think this person was great and they didn't score out well. Right. But instead of scoring that person differently, what we'll do is we'll say, okay, how does that inform the next iteration of our rubric? Well, it turns out the reason we thought they were great was, you know, they seemed really creative. Is creativity actually something we think is going to be predictive of success in these roles? And then we can have a conversation about the trait, not about the person, which I think is, is a really important step when you're designing these kinds of things. So. I'd always recommend starting with a scorecard, especially if you're designing a high-volume recruiting process, seeing how well the scores match up to performance in the roles, knowing that in those first few hires, you're going to make a few mistakes because your scorecard is not going to be perfect. The key is to keep measuring, keep measuring over time, and then go back to the scorecard and say, hey, which questions were productive, which weren't. And for some reason, this is a really intuitive thing for people when it comes to anything that doesn't involve people. Like, right. <laughs> you know, if you're designing sales outreach, a lot of sales leaders, it's really obvious, right? I'm going to design a template. I'm going to measure the open rate, measure the reply rate, right. pick the one that's performing best, go back, redesign things to look like that. When it comes to hiring people, oftentimes this isn't how sales leaders go about it. They do things like, this person seems like a shark, right? Or this person has a strong hand, like good handshake. Yeah. And it's just not data-driven at all. And so what we're trying to do is insert data into that part of the process. So is it fair to say, if we're formulating, I'm just trying to think out loud from my own perspective, if I'm trying to formulate my card for the first time, specifically trying to hire SDRs, which we know are not going to have the experience, is the first thing to start out is, okay, what are the traits? Like, is it to start with, what are the traits we're looking at? Second layer of it, okay, with that trait, let's just say it is extroverted or high sense of urgency or whatever, develop questions to uncover, is that a trait that they have? And then score, develop a scoring system on how they answer those questions to get to, yes, they have that trait, no, they don't. Am I boiling that down way too far? Or is that kind of what we're talking about there? I think that's spot on, right? And this is a process actually heavily informed much as I'd love to say we were the first people to ever think of this, Mark Roberge describes in a lot of detail the process they built at HubSpot, and this is going back you know, over a decade, to do just exactly this, right? A data-informed approach to hiring. 
I think what a lot of folks have trouble with is doing this at early stage or even medium stage companies, right? Very easy to say, oh yeah, of course that's how they do it at a big company, but you know, we can't do this. We're a tiny little company. We can't take those kinds of risks. And I think the key thing to understand is, or two key things to understand. One is if your startup is successful, it's going to be big and you're going to have to hire a lot of salespeople. So you might as well start by doing this with your first hire. Yeah. And then the second thing we see all the time is startups that will come to us and they just think this is too risky. So what they'll say is, we're going to hire an SDR with six to 12 months of experience. We only want to hire SDRs with six to 12 months of experience. We hear this all the time, right? Can you get us SDRs with six to 12 months of experience? And what I always explain to folks is I actually think based on our experience, in some cases, you're taking more of a risk doing that based on the adverse selection of looking for folks that have already been in these roles and are now switching relative to just getting the entry-level hiring process right, right? Because what we find is typically these roles have a shelf life of 12 to 18 months after which folks are going to be looking to move into management or into account executive roles, down funnel sales roles. And so certainly it's possible to find folks with 6 to 12 months of SDR experience who are killing it in cold calling roles that are new. Different stuff happens. But the odds, I think, are much lower. And we've consistently found that they're much lower than trying to perfect the entry-level hiring process. I love that call out because that would have been me <laughs> saying, hey, all right, we said, like, all right, I think that's something we can get our head around. There's some experience. We can track that experience. We understand good, bad, and different. So let's go down that path. But I want to get your thoughts around this because you and I were talking about this when we were talking about, hey, understanding the behavioral side of things. And you and I were talking about non-professional experiences, how to translate the non-professional things that they're not going to have the, like you said, cold calling. They don't have it. So asking questions around that is really doesn't make sense. But you said, hey, how do you get to that trait from a non-professional example that they can walk you through and articulate through, and then you can extrapolate from to say, okay, there's a fit or not. Give me some examples of what you could pick a subject or pick a trait. What would something be like from a non-professional that you can kind of start honing in on? Yeah, so one key for us is we ask behavioral questions. And at the start, we always say that you can use an example from any professional, personal, or academic experience that you've had. Okay. And we're never asking questions assuming something, right? So we're not like, tell me about in college a time where X, Y, and Z happened, or tell me about a time where you were on a team where X, Y, and Z happened. That sounds ridiculous, but actually, you will come across organizations that do this. They're like, have assumptions about people's backgrounds built into questions, which is always crazy. So in identifying the traits themselves, what we'll typically do is ask folks to tell us about a time where they exhibited a trait in any scenario and what the end result of that incident was. So to give you an example. Yeah, perfect. That's how I was going with it, Jeremy. We ask a question like that about resilience, right? where we're asking folks to tell, and we have a specific way we ask the question. But basically, the, the gut of it is to tell us about a time where they demonstrated an ability to bounce back from something. And it's interesting. You know, we've got people who will come into that scenario and they will tell us about a time where they were in a college class and they were getting a D for the first two months. And then they stayed up until two in the morning working on assignments, studying extra hard and going to meet with the professor and all these different things. And they brought their grade up to an A. Awesome. We will have people who talk about a previous sales experience that they've had where they weren't making quote because occasionally we do hire folks with previous nerves, not biased against that. Yeah. And it's a very literal translation of like, hey, I wasn't meeting quota. 
I was frustrated. I adapted my approach. I took a data-driven approach to modifying what I was doing, and I hit quota the next quarter. That's another answer. And then there's a third answer of somebody who was on a football team, <laughs> and he was he was on a team that wasn't performing well, and he was able to motivate the team around him to achieve an incredible result in a particular game by getting them to focus on the things that they could control <laughs> and winning the game. And the entire team rallied around him and was able to win the game, right? So it can come from any of those three scenarios. It, it doesn't matter what the scenario is. It's about a describing a time where you faced some type of adversity, bouncing back from that in some way that you had agency over. So sometimes we'll get answers, for instance, that describe somebody bouncing back, but they had nothing to do with it. <laughs> so I was on a team that wasn't doing well, and then we started doing well. Well, what were the steps involved in that, right? Yeah. So we will sometimes hear answers like that. And we found that objectively speaking, that is not an answer that demonstrates your trait of resilience as effectively as an answer that actually describes the steps you took. I don't care if it was in a sales role. I don't care if it was on a sports team. I don't care if you were in a theater troupe. I really don't care what the example comes from. It's about how you exhibited the trait. So I'm always trying to listen for or look for wrong or right. Is it extrapolating, not necessarily the scenario, because it could be very random. It's the specific steps they took. That's what you're listening for. And if there's actually specific steps, then it's, I'm just going to give it a grade of thumbs up. Like, yes. is it that linear or am I off a little bit? Okay. Yes. Nope. That's hundred percent right. It is literally the scenarios make absolutely no difference. I don't care what scenario you were in. It could be, Hey, I was in a really tough time in my life and I was in jail Yep. and here's what happened. And here's how I stayed positive and here are the steps I took to bounce back from that situation. Here's how I got from A to B. That's as good an answer as a totally different scenario, which is as good an answer as a totally different scenario than that, so long as you're describing the steps that were involved. Gotcha. So all that is to say the sort of specific scenario really doesn't make a difference. There are what we call red flag answers that come up very rarely. And those would always be linked to describing something that would be a problem in the actual role. <laughs> so as an example, if somebody is describing, okay. is in the course of answering one of these questions, describing a behavior that would, for instance, lead to their immediate termination of Bandelier. As an example, if you were giving an answer to the resilience question and describe bouncing back from adversity by lying to somebody about you know a certain thing, and that's how you bounce back, and that's how you got the good grade. That would be a red flag answer, right? Like that showcases the lack of integrity. But beyond that, it is pretty linear. Gotcha. And then I'm assuming if that's what you're looking at and you're trying to extrapolate kind of a thumbs up, okay, they, they exhibited the trait, they exhibited the steps. If you do that across four traits, I know we kind of were talking through this a bit, right? There has to be a trait that stack rank higher than another. Because if you have four thumbs up, like, yes, okay, how do you make a decision? Is that what you're doing at the end of the day is what are those exhibits? What are those traits that are more important? Is that kind of the net net? Yes, this is a really important point. So we do weight the different traits that we look for. And we actually were public in, in this, like when we're talking to clients, the three that we found to be most predictive of success in inside sales roles specifically, the first isn't going to surprise you. It is resilience. It's the ability to bounce back from adversity. If you're going to be making 100 cold calls a day, you got to be the kind of person who's willing to get hung up on 99 times and still pick up the phone the hundredth time, right? Right. The second is coachability. So ability to take feedback really well. What's interesting is we find that very often people who take feedback well actually aren't that resilient. And people who are very resilient often don't take feedback that well. 
Think about the most stubborn person you've ever met. They might be really resilient, but maybe they don't. If you give them advice, they're kind of blowing you off. That actually makes sense. Relative to, yeah, someone who's super coachable, but gets flustered very easily. So we're kind of looking for the Venn diagram, the person in the middle. And then the third, which we do not weight as highly, is baseline communication skills. So what we find is that is less important relative to resilience and coachability, but you do need to have a baseline of written communication skills and verbal communication skills to be able to get from A to B in our training academy. So we do weight that, but we don't weight it as significantly as as those other two traits. And in terms of stack ranking, you're spot on. So a big part of what we're trying to do is kind of build out a matrix where every single person who goes through our interview process has scores with an overall score, but also scores within each of those sort of sub areas so that we can tell clients when they join, hey, this is the area where we feel this person is strongest. This is the person, this is the area where we're going to be working the most with this person. And then evaluating month one, month two, month three, month four, how are we doing? You know, how is this person progressing? And that's data that we both hope to use to help that person ramp faster because if we're giving them feedback, that straightforward, we believe that that is going to help people kind of ramp faster in the roles and do better in the roles. But obviously, it also helps inform our interview process and helps us get better. So it's kind of a two-way street there. That's a win-win for you guys, for them and for yourself. That makes perfect sense. So you stack rank, they can walk you through specific steps that they took, thumbs up. I, I know I'm kind of sugarcoating this, but there are some that are much more important than others. Here's the thing that I actually We do. I don't know if we do it as well, but this is a big, important step that I don't know if I ever gave as much onus to as I probably should have. You've really said assessments and exercises as close to the role as possible. Help us understand, help the audience understand kind of what, what you're referring to when we talk about that. Yeah, I can actually give you a really specific example here because this is something we encountered ourselves. When we first started, we used sales scenario. We do a role play exercise in our interviews and not to give too much away, but we do those scenarios mostly to give folks a flavor for what our training, what our coaching sessions are like. So we'll do two role play exercises. And what we hope to do is have folks take our coaching from the first session and apply it to the second session. We think that gives us a really good sense of how they're going to perform. Of coachability. Exactly. Now, we used to use scenarios for this exercise that were the challenge we had is we only have a few minutes with this person and we can't expect them to learn the ins and outs of any type of tech product in, in just the you know half hour we have with them. And so we used scenarios that we thought could apply to the most number of people. And so what we did was we said, you're the owner of a store and here's four types of stores that you could be the owner of. Pick one okay. and imagine I'm walking into that store and you have to sell me on a particular product in that store. You can pick sunscreen, mascara, we had a sports store option, a tech store option. And we pretty consistently get the feedback, both from our managers and from clients, that like, this is an interesting exercise, but like, I don't run a store. I'm not looking for a store salesperson. Right? So like, your question of having somebody sitting in a store may be applicable to a lot of people. Maybe it's easy to do because they like understand the scenario intuitively, but it's really not that relevant to the role. And so we've actually rethought, we spent a lot of time and effort rethinking how we do those role play exercises to now it's more of an inbound sales exercise. We'll send them a document in advance that they have the choice to review. They don't have to, but we'll actually give them a few minutes to review a document. And it's more, it's a very, very simple tech product. And 
we know without giving too much away, we know that it's a tech product. We know that it's a tech product they'll, they have experience using. And so that that's allowed us to get to a scenario that's much more similar to what a typical SDR bandolier would be doing rather than one that was sort of in some ways the lazier option of just something that could apply to everybody. It's the equivalent of like, sell me this pen. Well, you're probably not actually going to be selling pens, right? So let's pick a scenario that's like closer to the actual job. <laughs> right. Yeah. What I like about that is obviously you let the system educate itself in the store owner and, and you adapted and you evolved. But I also picked up on a couple of things is that there was some prep, there were some instructions, there was some guidance to make sure you were setting them up for success. You weren't throwing them on the deep end of the ocean and say, okay, swim, I hope you figure it out. Like there was a method to the madness that I think sometimes we miss in that. Like, okay, we want to role play and we give it to them two minutes before the role play and say, okay, you're a salesperson. You should be able to adapt or adopt this in a very short fashion. But I love that aspect of it. And I think that might be overlooked in a lot of scenarios. I think it's along the same lines of like ensuring that your process as closely as possible matches the actual role that you're going to have these folks in. Yes, we are going to have people who on our team who need to review a Google document that summarizes a product offering, understand that product offering, right? try their hand at a first cold call that will probably be rough, and then we'll give them some guidance, and hopefully the second one's better than the first. Like That is a very, very typical scenario in one of our roles. It is not a typical scenario in our roles that we will say, sell me a pen and expect that person to sell me a pen perfectly on the first try. Like That's just not going to happen in 99.9% .9 of these roles. Yeah. So what are you actually looking for in that role? Like, like you're not really looking for their sales. Of, like, what are the things that you tend to look at or, hey, put more stock in? Is it how they communicate? Is that their, their voice? Is it their body language? What do you tend to look at more than, oh, man, they, they sold me that idea? What are you typically looking for? Yeah, so within the traits that I mentioned, it's really a combination of looking for, indeed, the voice and how natural they're able to sound using a partial script that's been provided and sort of questioning skills, some of those sales skills we look for in the role. And then the second piece is ability to take feedback. And that's something we've added on of like, okay, we're going to do this twice. We're going to give you feedback and how well are you and how effectively are you able to implement it? So it's really of the traits I mentioned, communication skills and, and feedback. And the coachability, are they able to implement it in the second go run? If you guys give feedback in round one and in round two, see them implement it is that kind of a red flag that or is that too soon to say hey they're not coachable like is that fair or not fair what, what's your thought around it's going to impact their score pretty heavily because ability that's not the only place in the interview where we measure people's ability to take feedback but it is one key one and so yeah if we have specific areas where we're assessing did they take and implement the feedback and if, if they didn't that's something we're, we're certainly going to take note of that's fair so talk to me, because this one jumped out at me when we were having our conversation offline, because we were talking about hiring the right candidate. The third thing that we were talking through is the first couple weeks are critical for yeah. validation. And I'm starting to piece together why, but help us understand why that very first couple weeks, you've made a decision, you're bringing somebody on. Why is that first two, three weeks critical from a validation standpoint? So I think it's always important, but I think it's especially important for entry-level sales roles because indeed you're going to have sort of more variation in these folks and in the outcomes here than you would with a more experienced hire. More experienced hires, you're very rarely going to come up and people who've you know successfully navigated 20-year careers, yeah. you're generally not going to have the issue of like the person who shows up late, 
person who's not able to take basic instructions or basic feedback well, that type of stuff. But in entry-level roles, it's more common and that's something you got to accept. And so the way we try to treat the first two weeks is it's really an extension of that interview process and it's sort of a confirmatory step. And so within our Bandelier University, within our training academy, and we're getting to a point now where we're actually measuring a lot of this pretty specifically, we're really looking for a continuation of those traits that we identified in the interview process. Now, you'll notice we don't make a big secret out of what we're looking for here. I'm going on podcast talking about it. It's not like this is some sort of game that we're trying, not some sort of gotcha thing where we're trying to catch people. We're public about it. These are the things that will make sure. you successful in the role. These are the traits we want to see you exhibit. Right. We tell people that in day one. We tell them on day one, show up on time is critical, right? Take feedback really well is critical. You know, Make sure you're prepared with good questions for client calls is critical. And so we're... I think that's part one is making sure folks know what the expectations are. And then the second part is making sure our managers are really deliberate about taking note of these things. And one of the benefits we have, and one of the reasons we encourage growing companies to work with us, is we have the experience now of having done this with hundreds of team members. So we kind of know what the baseline is. I think a lot of companies make two types of mistakes in opposite directions. And especially a lot of early stage companies do this. One mistake they'll make is they're actually too punitive because they are so insecure. The minute somebody exhibits a trait that like suggests they don't have 20 years of experience, they're like, oh my God, this isn't working. And my VC tells me that like I got to cut people quickly, hire fast, fire fast. So they're out the door on day two. We see some of that. Right. On the flip side, we see the opposite where people are insecure about their ability to assess these things. And so really obvious red flags will just go unnoticed. Or they're noticed, but they're not handled, right? So like somebody showing up late every single day is a red flag. That is a problem, right? Irrespective of how many sales hires you've made, that's a problem. I've heard of crazy stories of people just going months on end, people cursing at clients. But I don't know, maybe that's what great salespeople do. We've never hired a salesperson before. So if you don't have the experience of having done this with hundreds of people, it's kind of tough to know where to set those baseline parameters. And so that's one unique advantage I think we have in the space of just having collected all of this data. Yeah. And one of the things, and kind of where you've been going with this, those are all fantastic feedbacks because you're right. I have found even early in my career, and even maybe to some degree, even now, you do kind of fall on both sides of those spectrums. Either you're way too punitive and like, okay, they're done. Day two, they didn't exhibit this. Or you're way too lax and you don't pull the trigger when you should. And the whole nine yards comes from that. So I love that catch on your side. The other piece I was going to mention to you is that obviously in that very first couple of weeks, you're also gauging, are we looking at the right traits? Because this person was highly, we thought he was highly coachable. And for whatever reason, is that the right trait or he wasn't? Like, how do you weigh that against and implement that into your interview process, what you learned after they've been hired, if you will? So we try to do this in a fairly deliberate way where like we try to make note of all that feedback and then every six to 12 months, we'll go back to the interview rubric and redo it. (laughs) We try not to overreact to individual instances. One of the real dangers associated with building an entry-level hiring process is you fall into the victim of like small sample size where one person, as an example, takes vacation early on. And you're like, oh, this and and turns out to be turns out to be an ineffective salesperson. And then you're like, oh, well, I told you, people who take vacation, that must be a bad sign for for sales. And here's my sample size of one. 
we're going to add to the rubric in the first two weeks if you take vacation or you talk about vacation. Right. And so we try to be pretty deliberate about not making one-off adjustments, about collecting data over time, because there's all sorts of weird after effects too, where you could suddenly be controlling for something you didn't expect or, or things like that. And so we try to be deliberate about collecting enough examples to warrant a change to the rubric. One really good example of this is, and it was actually a suggestion of one of our early team members, one of the things that he mentioned is, hey, I asked you all those questions in the sales process. Did you actually evaluate the questions that I asked? We're like, no, we didn't evaluate it. We, we just wanted to know what questions you had. Yeah. But it was really interesting. Like, maybe we should be doing that, right? Questions are a key component of sales and good questioning skills are obviously a key component of what makes a, a salesperson effective. And so we looked anecdotally over two to three months and kind of said, this is really interesting. Like, it seems like the folks who are doing well in other areas tend to be the ones who ask the most questions in the interview process. And so in our next round, we introduced that into our interview rubric. And it has turned out to actually be one of our one of the most predictive areas of our interview rubric. Is it quality or quant? Like they ask the most questions, like they ask good, but they also ask a lot of questions. Both. Lest I ask, lest I lead any prospective candidates astray here, you will not get extra points for asking 20 questions in our in our interview, in our interview, was only ask questions if you genuinely have them. But yeah, quite you know, we have mechanisms for evaluating the quality of questions and, and how much thought went into them, and then obviously also quantities of factor as well. Is there a sample size that like I like that? I mean, because you're right, you can go off of a steep cliff fast. Oh, he did this. Let's base it off of one person. I like you say, hey, we evaluated on a sampling over the course of six months, twelve months which may be 30, 40, 50, 100 people that you've hired in that time, that's a pretty good thing. Is there a guidance that you would provide? Like, hey, if it's six months and you only got three people because you don't hire that much, you're not trying to scale up. Like, what is a good sampling to start making changes to the rubrics? That is a great question and probably a better question for somebody who did better in Stat 101 than I did. But what I would say is... For us, it was probably when we got to dozens of hired people, I would say, like once we got above, okay, once we were in my 12 to 20 range is really when we started making tweaks. And like anything else with, with sample size, it's some of it is about, obviously, the N is critical, but what's also critical is looking at how dramatic the impact is. So obviously, small differences within a smaller sample size aren't going to be as relevant as large differences. We have a process internally we refer to as data gut which is the combination of intuition with like actual data. And what we always preach is we are not about ignoring intuition. Intuition plays a critical role for our salespeople and for all the processes we build. It's just that you need to constantly be measuring. So what I would say is it's less about when you make the tweak and more about making sure if you make the tweak, continue to measure it, continue to see how it plays out. Maybe A-B test it is one thing I would recommend in your interview process. So if you're having lots of different interviews, you do one thing in one set of interviews, another thing in another set of interviews, you just A-B test different questions so that you continue to accumulate sample size in, in both areas. And that can be one effective way of doing this. That's great feedback. There's got to be, and we were talking about a little bit, we touched on it. Like there's, there's that punitive, hey, let's get rid of them. They, they took a vacation in the very first two weeks or... Hey, let's just keep holding on to, but there's got to be red flags, Jeremy, like to the interview points, like, Hey coach, they made it through. We've hired them. Are there red flags that you're like, Hey, these have got to be deal breakers. Are, are there certain attributes that you've seen yes. that are not specific to someone that 
if a group has demonstrated this, are there red flags that you look for that's an immediate concern or whatever the case might be? Yeah, I think for us, I mean, there's a handful. Sure. The biggest one, and that's probably the most common where we see red flags, is on the ability to take feedback. And we take this really seriously for two reasons. One is that our clients really care about it. The other is that our culture is built on this idea of Kaizen or continuous improvement. And what that means is, you know, some companies would just say, I can hire the brilliant jerk, right? That paradigm, because they'll generate so much in sales for me. I'll just let them be a lone wolf and and that'll work. That makes sense for some companies. It's not for us, right? Like we believe in continuous improvement. We believe in sacrificing other things in order to make sure that we're living consistently with that value. And so people who push back heavily in a contentious way on feedback in their first two weeks, saying, well, I learned this at another organization, you just don't know to their managers. That's something we have seen. And that gets people that's a case where we need to separate pretty quickly where we see that sort of thing. There's other basics that won't come as any surprise. Obviously, if people are constantly late, you know, not showing up on time, you know, not doing assignments, not following instructions in the first two weeks. Those are really obvious red flags. Integrity issues for us, which tend to come up pretty early when they come up. We're fortunate they don't come up that often, but they tend to come up within the first few months. Those are red flags. And we've learned, and this won't surprise you, that integrity is not something you can coach. When you see integrity issues, that's, that is a precursor to more integrity issues. And so that, that tends to be something that, that we can't really work around. So I think those are all, you're like, a lot of those are table stakes, right? The showing up late. And this is really specific to that interest. Cause you say, listen, a tenured person, they've kind of navigated a career. The, the basics are there. The basics are there. From an entry yeah. level standpoint, those have got to be key criteria. One thing that jumped out at me is you said, listen, feedback, like push back on feedback, because there's a big point that I, I took from that. It's not that you want someone to not push back, but like if there's questions, yeah, I encourage questions, but I think it's the contentious Pete, right? Is, is that the big piece that is the deal breaker, if you will? Yeah, we have found through our interview process that there is a certain segment of the population where if you ask them about a time they received feedback, they will automatically jump to what an idiot one of their bosses was <laughs> and tell you like why they were right. Right. And it's amazing. I mean, people know, I assume, why we're asking a question. And again, we're not private about it. I'm here on this <laughs> podcast talking about it. It doesn't matter. Right. If you ask people about a time they got feedback, they will jump to, you know, there was this time and my boss said to do it this way. And I knew he, I knew he or she was wrong and I had to do it anyway. And it turned out they were wrong. And it's not, the problem is not that that happened to them. That happens to everybody. Everybody has a time where they got feedback. And, and mm-hmm. the problem right. is, is that the first thing they think about when they think about feedback <laughs> is that instance, rather than one where they got constructive feedback. And that's what we find. We find that there are some folks whose default when they get feedback is to push back automatically. Of course, there are going to be times where you get feedback in your career that you disagree with. And it's one thing to say, that's a really interesting perspective. Here's what I found. What do you think about that? Versus that doesn't make any sense to me. And here's why, right? Like there there are different things to look for there. And generally speaking, we find that the feedback folks are getting in their first two weeks is basic enough. Generally, there's not that much to be, in most cases, to be pushing back on their exceptions, of course. But yeah, we find that there's some folks whose default is is just to push back, and, and that's what that's what becomes an issue. No, I think that's a great call. I like, I love the example. Should that in that scenario, where hey, I had this boss tell me, and he was wrong. Like when you're asking around coachability, and that was the scenario that they painted. Yeah. Is that an automatic like 
I don't want to say thumbs down, but is that one of those kind of red flags in the interview process that no way, I know you said that coachability is one that if you were stack ranking, coachability is like one of the top ones. Would that be a red flag that this is an issue that you may not be able to, from a hiring standpoint? So my team always gets pissed at me when I give (laughs) too much away on the rubric. So I'm not going to get into the specifics of like exactly how the scoring works. Yeah. I can tell you that it is not a good thing. Okay. When we see that. Okay. So I always would recommend that folks pick an instance where they receive feedback that actually helped them improve their performance. It, one of the things a buddy of mine was talking to me about offline, when I was telling him about this conversation that we were going to have. It's also when you're hiring new SDRs or int- I don't want to say interest, that's not, but newbies, I mean, if you will, I don't know if that's any better or not, but someone that doesn't have the acumen, maybe business acumen that's been in the role for 20 years, they also don't have kind of become, they haven't become professional interviewers, especially in sales where they know the right answers. Like you're, you're catching them at the right time where they're going to give you candid feedback, not knowing I shouldn't have said that, or I should have tweaked that, like just through life experience. Right. So you're going to get a lot more candid things to assess around if that makes sense to you. Is that a fair assessment or am I way off base on that? It's an interesting point. And it's one we've discussed a lot internally. Like some people just interview well, right? And I think like anything else, there is some truth to that, that there are people who kind of know, know the process, people who are smart enough to not be the kinds of people who take feedback well, but to have an answer <laughs> ready where they do. Right. What we find, though, is that where we ask questions about behavioral traits from people's past, the examples they tend to choose, irrespective of how much experience they have, tend to be pretty illustrative of like, how much they'll exhibit that trait, irrespective, actually, of how much experience they have. And one of the really interesting things we find is that people with more experience sometimes choose examples that are like less flattering. <laughs> they have more examples to choose from, right? but they're just picking the wrong ones, right? And it's not that they're picking the wrong ones. It's that this trait isn't necessarily something that they exhibit in spades. And so the examples that come naturally to mind aren't quite as effective. I would say... The skills-based stuff, so our role plays, for instance, are cases probably where folks with a little bit more experience will probably have a leg up. But as best we can, we design our interview process to be really reflective of like what the role actually looks like. Though it's also true that in some ways, folks who have experience clearly are going to have a little bit of a leg up in the actual role if they have experience doing, <laughs> doing role plays. And to some extent, there should be some credit for that in the interview process. You know, if you are naturally going to be more effective just having had the experience doing sales role plays before doing being in sales scenarios and you should maybe get some credit for that but by and large what we find is that there isn't a ton of correlation between experience and and we have interviewed lots of people with experience and performance which is why we don't screen for it at the outset i mean if we saw that gap we might consider screening up front and saying hey you need to have x amount of experience and for the reasons we've already discussed we don't do that that makes sense so Jeremy, how do people learn more about you, Bandelier, and the services you guys offer? Yeah, so definitely encourage folks to reach out. I'm available at Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, at bandelier.co. You can check out our site, our LinkedIn profile, our Instagram profile. Here we're on TikTok now, although I personally <laughs> am not. So any of those channels, you can learn more about us. And yeah, this was really great. Thanks so much for having me on. No, absolutely, man. It was an absolute fun. It was a pleasure having you. We're going to put all that in the show notes so everyone can get access awesome. to Jeremy. Jeremy, thanks again for coming on. Really enjoyed the conversation. 
Likewise, Sam. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Sales Samurai Podcast with your host, Sam Capra. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast and visit salessamurai.io and join the conversation, access show notes, and discover bonus content. 